This is CliffCentral.com. Hello and welcome to the Daily Maverick Show. You're tuned in with myself, Greg Nicholson, and today joining me is Daily Maverick journalist Richard Poplack. Richard, how are you doing? How are you? Well, I'm starting today's show with a little bit of a heavy heart. Mm-hmm. The last show we had was Kingsley Kapoori, our former host, who, who worked with us for about two years. Uh, he was, it was his last um, show before he moved back to Nairobi, his mm-hmm. home in Kenya. But I know he's listening, and he's even actually helped us out with a bit of the work today. Right. So a bit of a shout-out to Kingsley. And well, we're we're desperately, push we desperately love Kingsley, and we're going to miss him terribly. We've got an exciting show lined up. We're going to be speaking to you, Richard, in just a moment. And then we're going to go and speak about... South Sudan and the postal system, interestingly. After that, we're going to go jump, ab- uh, jump over to issues in Zimbabwe and talk about the diamond fields and the looting that's been perpetrated by both private interests, working with security services and the government. But first up, Richard, I'm not sure if people who read your writing regularly might notice you have a bit of a interest or, or perhaps obsession with South African press releases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's right. I mean, I I, I truly believe they're uh, an under, you know, an understudied literary form. I mean, these are these are written by, in many cases, very very smart people who, um, you know, are to- towing a very short, you know, factional line, and uh, the absurdity that emerges between that sort of contrast is uh, is um, is just astonishing. So, well, these are probably the most refined. Um, sort of mineralized pieces of bullshit you'll find anywhere in the world. And uh, I think we excel at the press release. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. The NC Women's League, the NC Youth League, I think they're, they're, they're leading <laughs> yeah. some of the best lately. I'm not sure if listeners, uh, listeners know about what our inboxes sort of look like. Yeah, and this is key. I, I mean, I, I think um, the life of a reporter is, you know, is, is basically the life of sifting through Press releases. It's sort of like a Tinder for press releases. You swipe left or swipe right. <laughs> you swipe left or you swipe right. You're, you're not swiping right much. Um, so who, who are the, I mean, the greatest perpetrator of press release, um, inundatory crimes is, is the Democratic Alliance by far. I, I mean, my inbox, if, if I haven't looked at email for seven hours, it's basically, it looks like, a, the DA exploded all over my computer. You'll have nine press releases from Marifong municipality yeah. about about their the problems over there. Yeah. So uh, just uh, if uh, Pumzilla or anyone else at uh, at the Democratic Alliance is is listening, please calm down. Um, th- then y- you know, following shortly, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the EFF press releases are are very often, um, you know, they always make for good reading. Sometimes they're just completely ludicrous my, my favorite and i wait for this every year is the revolutionary birthday greeting to to the commander-in-chief um that's that's kind of like my my favorite it's it's like soviet style propaganda with a south african twist um highly recommended okay so this week you wrote an article quite quite uh, wide-ranging about politics in south africa dancing succession succession race and when i was reading the article i wasn't quite sure where you were going mm-hmm you eventually got to the point. Thank you. <laughs> you. You eventually came to a paragraph where you described an arsehole bomb. Mm-hmm. What is an arsehole bomb? Right. So an arsehole bomb is is effectively. I, I think it's one of the greatest metaphor for how sort of global politics uh, operates right now. Um, in um, in two thousand and nine, the, the crown prince of who was then the crown prince of uh, of um, 
of Saudi Arabia, bin Nayef, Mohammed bin, bin Nayef, was in a hotel room in Jeddah and uh, an Al-Qaeda operative uh, disguised as a petitioner came to see him and he had secured an uh, improvised explosive device uh, inside his body but not through his mouth, right? And uh, he and detonated the device. Nose. Pardon me? It wasn't, it wasn't up, up his nose. nose and it wasn't in his ears. So that leaves one, one uh, orifice. Um, so... Uh, and, and for, for, for MBN, as he's known, it was a very bad day at the orifice. Um, the, 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 the bomber detonated the device and into terrorists, terrorism's lexicon was entered the word, uh, or went, entered the term asshole bomber. And my point is that that is about as low as, as kind of, you know, political discourse goes but we're we're kind of like that's politics at this point there's someone walks into a room detonates an asshole bomb and uh, all hell breaks loose now you know my point was uh that that's kind of where we're at right now in south africa by the standards of saudi arabia we're not doing too bad uh by any other standards we're doing doing pretty terribly and the asshole bombs are exploding uh willy-nilly all over the place so in your piece you mentioned some of the some of the problems across the country such mm. as Political assassinations, particularly in KwaZulu-Natal, uh, lack of accountability across government in general, captured institutions. Yeah, 100%. So, so, I mean, all of this with an eye toward what is the South African politics nuclear bomb. Uh, unfortunately, because of the dominance of the African National Congress, we're, we're obsessed with this electoral conference that's coming up. Um, and uh, the succession battles that are, that are underway uh, at the present moment. So, you know, everything kind of flows towards that kind of political nexus, I, I, I guess you'd say. And um, I, I guess the point of the piece was to try and tie some of that stuff together and, and highlight how um, incredibly awful the two front-running candidates are, in my opinion. Uh, and Kosasana Tlamini Zuma on one end and Cyril Ramaphosa on the other end. Um, before we get to even some of the stuff that's happened today, which I think highlights I- exactly the dangers inherent in, in the secession race and how uh, febrile the situation in the country actually is, um, I- I'd like to point out that both of the, the factions to which these uh, front-running candidates are attached have their own very significant problems. Um, and and the, the thing that sort of blew it up for me was the so-called uh, Ramaphosa leaks. The uh, emails that were leaked or hacked or stolen or or redacted or made up or whatever r- regarding uh, Cyril Ramaphosa's um, sub- allegedly having affairs with eight separate women over the course of the past several years. Um, and uh, it, it, he, he tried to get ahead of the story first by getting it killed, by, by getting in touch with uh, the Sunday Independence uh, publisher, the infamous Dr. Iqbal Survey, uh, and then by trying to get ahead of the story, admitting that he had indeed had one affair. Um it sort of showed the political dilettantism uh, that's inherent in, in the Ramaphosa campaign. They seem to feel that they're just going to sail through this one. With, despite all evidence to the contrary, whatever bubble they exist in, they don't seem to quite understand how vicious this fight is going to get. It seems that you're perhaps disappointed isn't the right word, but you're much more critical of Ramaphosa's team's response to, to these leaked emails than the actual allegations within them. I, I frankly, Jack, I don't care if Cyril Ramaphosa is having affairs or if if he's a blesser. Consenting relationship, how, however revolting blesser blesser culture may be, and and it, and it, why we're obsessed with it is because it highlights the power dynamics that are, are are still inherent in our society, the gender power dynamics, the the economic power dynamics. But blessing is not illegal. 
Having affairs is not illegal. Even if you take the moral high ground, like Cyril Ramaphosa tries to all the time, it's still not illegal, right? And there's there, there's this phenomenon extent in the country right now, which I, I term shyster relativism, which is like, why is the media going mad over the Gupta leaks and, you know, sort of sweeping the, the Ramaphosa leaks under the carpet? I'll tell you why. Because the Gupta leaks represent the complete dissolution of rule of law in the state. They highlight how corrupt our entire culture, our entire political economy has become. And if we look at Nikos Zanat Lumini Zuma, mm. what's her asshole bomb? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, I, guess, image, I guess her asshole bomb is, 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 is a not an, uh, it's the non-asshole bombage of her. It's, 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 it's her blandness. It's her seemingly complete disinterest in this campaign. I mean, she shows up at events, she stands up, she reads through the paperwork, and it is paperwork. I mean, these aren't really speeches. I've seen her, I've seen her on numerous occasions now, and uh, she only gets less and less inspiring as the campaign sort of trundles along. Um, and if anyone in the ANC tells you they're excited about, uh, of Lamini Zuma becoming the next president of the, of the organization, they're flat out lying, and they have a factional agenda to push. Um, I guess her her also bomb is is the fact that she is the most nakedly factional leader yeah. perhaps the movement has ever had. I mean that's a sweeping statement, but but I, I think it's defensible. I think it's hard to deny that she appears to be a puppet 100%. operating. She, she is a strong political operator in her own right. She's very successful. She's held very senior cabinet positions. She was the chairperson of the AU Commission. Yet at the same time, it seems undeniable. That she's acting in the interests of President Jacob Zuma after he's going to going to step down or, or step down as ANC leader at least. We'll see what happens to him as president. Mm-hmm. Um, likely his friends, the Guptas, yeah. as well as their their political friends such as the Free State Premier, um, certain factions within KwaZulu Natal mm-hmm. and Pumalanga, mm-hmm. Northwest, and so on and so on. Yeah, I mean, Jack, you know, Greg, the, the writing's on the wall. Um, and, and, you know, the thing about her, where, where I guess it became clear that she was going to go a certain way after her extremely undistinguished, uh, tenure at the, the African Union, uh, at the African Union buildings in, in, uh, Addis Ababa. And, and all of this is keeping in mind that this is a, this is a highly competent individual. You know, this is, a, this is a trained medical doctor. You, you know, she's held numerous positions. I mean, she's more than qualified. To, to sit in a backbench in parliament and, and has held, you know, I think it's three cabinet positions. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so we're not talking about a, a, a dilettante here by any means. Uh, but what we are saying is that there, there was a key sort of signal that this was going to go south. And that was the South African of the Year Awards. Do you remember those? ANN7 uh, held, held I th- one. I think in. I might have missed that. <laughs> well, you weren't up for one, Jack. Not, not yeah. this time, but now ANN7's changed ownership. Yeah, you could Who be knows? that Jimmy Money may finger you as the next uh, South African of the Year. And now, I, now I'm hosting this show after Kingsley's departed. Yeah, I could be up. It's all looking good for you, man. It's well, if, if any, any listeners want to nominate me for the ANN7 South, South African of the Year, it might be difficult because I'm not South African, but... We you can, know what? That's a that's a technicality. Um, you can get that naturalized quite quickly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you certainly can. So you know, all of a sudden, there's there's old uh, there's old uh, Lamini Zuma getting awarded the South African of the Year award in 2015, um, uh, and that's the first time I was in- introduced to the the Gupta trolls because they went mad after I criticised the the appointment. I, I've seen this. What was the hashtag? Oh no, there's a new hashtag now. It's dumb poplar. <laughs> 
Yeah. And it's all over Twitter. It's all over Twitter. It was trending. It was trending in South Africa. Yeah. Dumb pop like You feel they could have done better than that. I thought you it was know? pretty catchy. Did you? I, I thought they at least could have gone anti-Semitic. I mean, that's, you know, that seems to be a natural. I feel that's just too much. Dumb pop like it just, it just puts it all out there straight away. Okay. Simple. Doesn't take up too many of your characters. Right. So you're a fan. I'm, I'm, I was, I was actually pushing it quite a lot. Thumbs up for dumb pop like from, from Greg Nicholson. You're listening to the Daily Maverick show with myself, Greg Nicholson and Daily Maverick journalist, hashtag dumb pop like. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, so I mean, you know, here we are in the middle of this of this of this huge arsehole bomb that is our own particular politics, and and then you know, look what happens today. The the electoral conference of of the KZN uh, ANC is turned is is overturned in the, in the High Court, Peter Maritzburg, and what happens now? Um, a, a faction that was previously associated with Glamini uh, Zuma Zuma is now uh, no longer uh, the winners of the electoral conference in in, in KZN. Um, a, 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 a province that is on the edge is now over the edge. Where do we go from here? We already know how divided KwaZulu Natal is. It's since I think it was um, then Premier Senzo Mtlunu mm-hmm. was was replaced or Sisles Galala won won that conference. In that vote, we've constantly seen, and even before that, we've constantly seen the factions coming coming to a heads, mm-hmm. and the the polit- political assassinations in the province are extremely worrying. And you mm-hmm. have to wonder what's going to happen now. Given such uncertainty, so I think the the ANC KZN have already suggested that they're they're going to appeal the ruling, mm. which which means this thing will likely be drawn out, or yeah. or, or go to the constitutional mm. court. But when we look at December, if this thing is still in limbo, what's going to happen? What happens from this was a twin conference from 2015? What happens to all the decisions and resolutions taken by the ANC exactly. Provincial Executive Council since then? Yeah, the implications are massive, especially in in, in a province of that size and of that of that importance, um, and that factionally divided. So we're, we're kind of into the we really are into the kind of dead zone here, mm. uh, the zone of um, complete and utter daily, almost hourly arsehole bombs exploding all over the place, and how these things resolve themselves, Jack. I you know I just don't know. Let's step back a bit and, and revisit Sir Ramaphosa. Mm-hmm. One of the things you mentioned in that piece is that, like you said, it's legal to have affairs. Mm-hmm. It is still legal to be a blesser, mm-hmm. if, although it's revolting, mm-hmm. as long as it's a consenting relationship yeah, with consenting adults. relationships, of course. Right. You said the thing that they should be attacking, or, the, or one of his biggest, Sir Ramaphosa's biggest pitfalls, is Marikana. Yeah. That he is acting in the interests of... Keeping the wealth within an elite. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that could actually bring him down in terms of the ANC's election race, or do people not even care that much? It's only about scandal and and corruption and rape and blesses. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, you know, th- this is the thing about modern retail politics is is that you go for the kind of lowest, um, the, the kind of lowest hanging fruit in mm. terms of um, reputationally damaging your opponents. Sora Ramaphosa, for an individual now hoping to be the president of the African National Congress, and one assumes by extension the president of the country, has done a terrible job of, um, of first of all, distancing himself from utter corporate collusion. Um, and, and by the way, and I think this is worth pointing out, and I really do urge your listeners to, to read the, the, the head op-ed in the, in the Daily Maverick today by Raj Abed, uh, Abedian, who lays out very keenly, I think, 
the actual collusion between the corporate sector and the public sector, right? Between governments and corporations. Now, there's this lie that the two are in complete opposition here in South Africa. And the Jacob Zuma faction has nothing to do with the formal corporate sector um, because they're all, you know, they're all dirty white monopoly capitalists. That which, is a complete and utter lie. Which, which is also strange considering that uh, over much over a decade ago, he was linked to French arms companies. Absolutely. I, I mean, the guy, the, the guy's hypocrisy knows no bounds. But the point is there are people who should know better who do trump out this line. Uh, it's certainly one of the talking points of Malusi Gagaba, mm. that there is this division between government and corporate, uh, which there is not. Uh, that piece spells it out very well, and it should dispel this argument, one hopes, um, forever. The king of that process is Cyril Ramaphosa. The guy who highlights that process is Cyril Ramaphosa. Um, and, and I think uh, he should have been campaigning for this job 10 years ago if he wanted it so badly. Um, and he has not done that. He has not disassociated himself from the types of uh, the types of activities, um, you know, high-end livestock, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, gentleman farming, um, you know, your average kind of billionaire lifestyle. Um, th- there's nothing about the guy that sort of disassociated himself from that. There's no man of the people there, um, nor have any of the policies that he's evinced of late suggested. Certainly not to me. Or, or any other real, you know, economic, economic analysts that I respect, that he has a plan for this country. Those, to me, seem to be massively disqualifying factors. It's a, it's a good question. Even when I think of that now, the first thing I think of is associating him with the National Development Plan. Mm-hmm. He seems to be the sort of guy, and I think he's been talking about that a bit, of implementing that. Yeah. But that doesn't say much. Well, the National Development the, the plan, plan The plan says yeah. some stuff, stuff yeah. but the fact that he supports it and just seems to adopt it and pick it up and take it from there might also suggest that he doesn't have his own vision. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, ad- adopting the NDP, which is officially the uh, the, the sort of um, you know, policy of the, the African National Congress, and I guess therefore, you know, South Africa's policy framework, uh, certainly as far as the economy is concerned, um, this is a document that was written a long time ago, you know, 2013. Right, that, that's when it was tabled. I think but I think it, it was tabled in 2012, or maybe it was adopted in 2012. 2012, it was, it, it I think was adopted it was. in 2013. I yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, and uh, it, its most recent innovation has been a mascot, which ironically is this creature, uh, a, a, a person dressed up in all white stocking material, like a, a white lycra ma- mascot. That's symbolic. Holding a big round oh, sign yes. saying "National Development Plan." So it looks like a big round. Yeah thing yeah dressed in white lycra mm. which doesn't seem to be exactly the messaging that they were going for <laughs> i mean speaking about white monopoly capital you got this it's, it's literally a fat white puppet it's a fat white puppet yeah so you know that's the latest innovation uh, you know um that the ndp has adopted what were we fighting about in the in the national policy conference slogans mm. white monopoly capital versus monopoly capital Radical economic transformation versus radical social economic transformation. This is absurd. Particularly, it seems that the public and society at large, it's been building for a long time. And I think South Africans have always been critical of corporate collusion, Mm. um, corporate corruption, the influence of things like minority capital or just big business on politics. Mm. And it's been the public's interest seems to be peaking at the moment mm. because of the links spelled out through the Gupta leaks. Yes. We see firms like McKinsey, KPMG, uh, linked to other firms like Trillion, linked mm. to Oak Bay, and linked to politicians. Yeah. 
But as this public interest grows and the public criticism and perhaps cynicism of the system grows, mm. perhaps this is the way it is the world over, but it doesn't seem that any political party really understands or wants to tackle this issue. You're 100% right. Uh, why might that be? Right? Uh, the connections between politics and corporate are snakes having sex. That's what it looks like. Slithering over each other. It's very hard to distinguish one specimen from the other. So you're exactly right. Um, you'd think that the EFF would have the command of this messaging. They don't. For some reason, they, they have not maximized the Gupta Leagues to the extent that uh, they, they could. Mm. They could seriously use it as a cudgel. For some reason, they just um, have decided not to use it in a way that I think they, they really could have. Uh, the DA have completely blown it. Uh, they, they keep speaking about the Gupta Leaks without getting into the substantives. And as for the ANC, well, the less said, the better. That's an interesting point on the EFF. I remember, I don't, can't remember if it was one or two years ago, but I marched with them from downtown Johannesburg to the Johannesburg Stock Exchange mm -hmm. in Santon. So that's yes. a good, I don't know, five, eight kilometers or something like mm -hmm. that, I'll guess. Felt like more. But, and that it was, a, does. Yeah. That, that, that was a huge march. It was mm -hmm. one of the biggest marches I've ever seen, actually, that I've covered. It's interesting that they haven't chosen to march to or march on these companies like KPMG or McKinsey. Or, or APSA, or, or, as they promised. That's right. Yeah. I um, wonder why. I think part of it is that um, everyone was rattled by the firing of Nklantlanene um, and how destabilizing that was. Um, I, I think there's this, there's this thinking that rattling the cage at this point, uh, because the economy is on a knife edge, and it really is, um, especially now with the tax on the tax in the South African Reserve Bank, which we now, you know, we now have fairly clear evidence of the state security, security agency was involved in, the presidency was involved in, and the public protector's office was involved in attacking the Reserve Bank. I mean, this is the state that we've got to. I, I think that, um, opposition politicians are nervous to jump into the fray and be terribly critical of the, 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 the elements that are kind of holding the economy together, uh, for better or for worse. Um, I, I think that's part of the strategic thinking. Don't mess with that right now. We'll get there. Uh, but, um, you know, to an extent, I think that's wrongheaded. Uh, South Africans know who's screwing them, right? Um, they know it's the government and they know it's corporate. It's the economy, stupid. And, and uh, you know, to quote George, uh, George Bush the first. Um, so, you know, I think they could have gone harder. And I think these have been these have been massively missed opportunities. At the end of the piece you wrote this weekend, and, and I'd encourage all of our listeners to go check it out on Daily Maverick. The title was? Uh, who we are, where we're going, something like that. That's right. Yeah. Um, you, I wasn't sure if you were calling for a revolution or if you're calling for increased social activism and participation. Um, Is there a and, difference? Well, I, I was worrying mm. that you might be starting to sound like a social activist like Mark Haywood. Yeah, no, I mean, me and Mark Haywood, we go, uh, we, you know, we, we share notes. Uh, no, um, you know, social activism at this, but what, what is social? It's active citizenry. You, you know, I don't, don't wear a t-shirt that says that with your favorite NGO in it. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is that the price of this demo, what this democracy costs is, is vigilance. And as much of a cliche that is, it's, it's, it's true. We don't have to accept anything. We don't have to accept anything. And, and, you know, just because there's nothing to replace what we have doesn't mean we need to accept what we have now. You know, sometimes nihilism is not a terribly bad thing, especially when you literally are looking down the barrel of the future and there's nothing there. 
So um, I, I guess that's kind of my point. Uh, it sounds a little bleak at this point, but um, but uh, yeah, uh, revolution. Uh, why not? Daily Maverick journalist Richard Poplack, thank you for joining us as always. My pleasure. Thank you. Stay tuned. We're going to a quick break, and then we'll be back talking about South Sudan. Welcome back. You're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central with myself, Greg Nicholson. We're going to change tack a little bit now and talk about issues in South Sudan. On the line, I've got Ryan Lenora Brown, who is the Johannesburg uh, Bureau Chief for the Christian Science Monitor. Ryan, can you hear us? I can, yeah. So, Ryan, this week we, we loved your article uh, from, from Juba, where you focused on the city's last and only only post office and just how how brilliantly, actually, you put that together, but also how through this post office and telling the story of what happens there, you were able to give us a sense of some of the key issues um, in South Sudan since it's since since its independence and some of the key or some of the very dire challenges since then first of all let's just jump straight in so can you give us a sense of the uh, physically physical layout and feeling inside it seems almost as though it's an archive or a time capsule this post office in in Juba South Sudan's capital that's right. So, so when you walk into the post office, the most striking thing is I visited a couple of times and both times there was no power, um, which is now quite common in government buildings in Juba, in all buildings in, in Juba, really. Um, so you have a lot of people sitting around at their desks, um, but not really able to do a whole lot because there's not power. Um, and then you have all of these kind of windows like you would have at any post office, um, you know, incoming mail, outgoing mail, money orders, all these various things, and absolutely no one queuing up to use them. And then, um, you know, what really made this a striking place to me was was the back room, the mail room, um, which, uh, you know, as I wrote, is, is just like this small archive of a city that's really been upended by war. Um, there is no outgoing mail service in South Sudan anymore, and all of the incoming mail, um, that post office is the terminus. And I think at, at one point, people probably came to the post office and collected mail from their post boxes. I mean, certainly a lot of people had post boxes, you see. The, you know the mail stuffed inside but it seems like maybe you know for years now um, no one has really come to collect mail so you just have mail spilling out every which way from the backs of these post boxes and then and then mail that's been addressed to addresses um, which does not get delivered and so just sits in these stacks sort of teetering all through the the mail room uh, just gathering dust um, so it's a, it's a very fascinating little uh, glimpse into you know sort of the the missed connections and the the severed ties that that uh, war has brought to South Sudan. Let's let's look at that. Can you talk to us a little bit about the creation of South Sudan, the enormous divisions amongst the people, infrastructure challenges, and really a, a postal system that was sort of a, it's a way to surmount some of these challenges. Even there was there was quite hope. Uh, there was quite a lot of hope for the postal system. Yeah. Well, so so I was sort of struck when I visited the, the post office by um, how it can be a kind of a metaphor for the hopes and then the dashed hopes, um, you know, of South Sudan over the last six or so years. Um, you know, of course, this this was a country born after um, a long period, five decades of, of civil war with Sudan um, and born to great fanfare from the international community, the humanitarian community, which, you know, as we know, um, sort of had a big hand in, in helping 
bring it into the world. Um, but but when it was born, it had very little in the way of a lot of very basic infrastructure and, you know, just even sort of the basic building blocks of government and bureaucracy. And so um, the post office, for instance, um, almost all of the post offices in South Sudan had been destroyed in the various civil wars. Um, the, the country itself had, you know, only a few dozen kilometers of paved road. So even the idea of delivering post um, was sort of a, a long shot. Um, but but it seemed like a way uh, that potentially you could unite the country. Um, and I know that's that seems a little weird or a little wonky. But, you know, in the United States, for instance, the Postal Service was one of the first kind of very functional bureaucracies that um, gave people a sense of a shared identity across, you know, a really vast geography. Because if you could put a local stamp on something and then, you know, in, in five or 10 days, it could get three or 4,000 kilometers. Well, then there was something linking you to these people three or 4,000 kilometers away from you, even if you didn't have much of a shared experience. And if the government could do that for you, you know, then that sort of gives you faith in the government. So I think there was an idea in South Sudan that you might be able to set up something similar, um, which, you know, as we know, didn't quite come to pass. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you just tell us a little bit about the divisions that, that the country, I guess, inherited when it became independent? Because we saw almost immediately after, after its independence, different factions, um, aligned to the president and deputy president going to war and they haven't really been resolved. Right. So, you know, as, as somebody who writes about sub-Saharan Africa for American audiences, I always get a bit nervous writing about ethnicity because, you know, I, I think mm -hmm. on its surface, um, it makes a lot of African politics sound quite sort of parochial or, or simplistic. And, you know, of course, as we know, there's just so much to unpack as to why there are ethnic conflicts in countries. And so South Sudan is experiencing one right now, which sort of broadly speaking is between uh, the two largest ethnicities, which are, are Dinka and Nuer. But but those divisions um, go back, as they do in many countries, um, to the colonial and post-colonial history, uh, you know, and the divisions that were created by, you know, by, by former rulers. And so in the case of South Sudan, you know, what happened was you had this massive country that became independent in the 1950s, um, and it was ruled by its sort of northern half, and those people became uh, the ruling elites and... Um, a lot of people in the South felt like quite second class citizens. And so they didn't really identify with Sudan as an entity, as a country. They didn't really feel a sense of nationhood there. And so they, you know, sort of um, became very, their closest community ties, political ties became to, you know, within their own local communities and within their own ethnicities. Um, and so during the civil wars that South Sudan fought against, Sudan, um, you know, they were sort of able to paper over those divisions or, or iron them out in the interest of fighting a common enemy. But as soon as that common enemy fell away, uh, you know, then those sort of localized um, loyalties uh, really came back. Mm -hmm. You use the Postal Service, as you said, as a metaphor for the South Sudan project, in a sense. But one gets the sense that they're both in sort of a barely functional limbo right now. So where do things stand? As far as I understand, the divisions are so deep that even, I, I think this is still the case, that the former deputy president, Riek Machar, is, is still stuck in South Africa. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I have to say, when I was when I was in South Sudan, I was not um, hearing a lot of positive things either from the South Sudanese or from um, 
the, you know, the sort of vast constellation of international humanitarians who are working there about the country's future. I mean, I think something like two thirds of the population currently is in need of urgent humanitarian assistance. A third of the population is displaced. Um, it's really in quite dire straits. But but something that I think is striking in circumstances like that is, you know, wherever you will find something really terrible happening in the world, um, you'll find people who are doing something about it, which seems quite simple, simplistic to say, but mm-hmm. I think it's easy to forget in the case of, you know, a story that uh, is this grim. And so going to the post office and seeing the people trying to keep alive um, this very small uh, sort of corner of the country, this very sort of, you could say, uh, you know, not particularly important institution, you know, just in the service of every country in the world has a post office, so we must keep ours going too. Um, you know, I think that's very striking and powerful. So yes, there are these sort of uh, quite grim high-level developments in South Sudan that we all see sort of in the headlines. Uh, but beneath the surface of that, I think there's a lot of a lot of people, you know, sort of figuring out how to get by and how to keep the country alive in the margins of all of that. Um, not to be a purveyor of doom, but um, are you just allow- able to outline some of these very large challenges that are still going on within the country right now? Well, so a big one that the, um, you know, the, the post office story reveals is that um, the civil servants in the country haven't been paid in, in several months. Um, and, and, you know, that, that includes not just people who work at places like the post office, which might, you know, as I say, not be the most sort of centrally important place, but a lot of, um, a lot of doctors, a lot of people who work in sanitation, uh, a lot of people in, in quite sort of significant posts for the basic functioning of, of a country. And that gets to a sort of wider, um, economic breakdown that's going on right now. I mean, this is, I think, the most oil-dependent country in the world, and because of falling oil prices around the world and also because of the conflict, um, its oil output has really tanked in the last few years, and that was, you know, sort of the source of most of the government's revenue. Um, And so the economic collapse is pretty complete at this point, and you can sort of just see it in, in very basic ways on the street. I mean, the roads in Juba are just clogged with people, waiting days and days at petrol stations that they've heard rumors are going to open and um, have a bit of petrol. And so they'll just sleep in their cars and wait for days. And, um, you know, then all around them are these shops. Many of the shops are shuttered because they can't afford fuel to power their generator to keep their store open. Um, and so there's just very little in the way of economic activity going on in the country right now. So I think, well, well, we hear a lot about the civil war, which is certainly significant, probably in the longer term, it's this economic collapse that is really um, what's going to destroy the country. Surely it must be having a devastating impact on the country's citizens. If we, if we look at turn to solutions, what do we need to see from the regional and international community for meaningful change in the country? Or do these sort of solutions need to come from within the South Sudanese themselves? Shoo, that's a really good question. And one I can't say I feel I feel qualified to answer because I feel that, you know, over the last several years, a lot of smart people have been putting their heads towards this without much of a resolution. Um, you know, certainly I would say the international community owes South Sudan an outsized debt because it had an outsized role in bringing this country into the world, um, you know, in a moment that many people say it, it wasn't ready for independence yet. What with, you know, having a 25% literacy rate and a few dozen miles of paved road and just sort of being um, facing a lot of really uphill challenges for its very survival. So, you know, I would say the international community owes it quite a lot going forward. 
So the establishment of South Sudan came, I think it was with uh, heavy heavy input from, was it three countries? There was a, there was a triangle of, of countries, the United States, I think one of the Scandinavian countries and another, if, I, if I'm not wrong. Um, yes, I, I know certainly, you know, from, from my perspective, writing for an American audience, yes, the U.S. was a, a very outsized player. Have have these international actors who helped establish Sudan and Sudan's independence, have they maintained the same same level of involvement to help the country work on their problems, do you think? Or, or is there a sense, perhaps, that with so many challenges uh, that the country's been abandoned by the international community? Well, you know, in- interestingly, I sort of wondered if that would be the case when I went, you know, were humanitarians in the world giving up on South Sudan? And, and I think the answer is not yet. And it's and it's because of this sort of very hopeful, very inspiring origin story, you know, the world's youngest country, this this country like coming into being after these decades of civil war and all of that. And so um, people at the UN were telling me that South Sudan at the moment is one of the best funded humanitarian operations in the world. You know, when they put out calls for money, they're getting most of it. Last year, they got 85% of what they asked for, the UN agencies did, um, which is quite, quite high, you know, when you compare that to, say, um, the famine relief efforts in, in East and Southern Africa, which were much lower funded, right? So it's, it's up there with Syria in terms of what people are willing to give at the moment. But, you know, there's also an increasing recognition, I think, in the international community um, that it's really, really expensive to do aid in South Sudan. Um, you know, if you give five million U.S. dollars of food, it might cost another 10 million U.S. dollars mm-hmm. uh, to get it where it needs to go because there's no roads, because you must do airdrops, because it'll get looted from warehouses and so forth. Um, so I think we'll we'll probably come to a point in the next few years where it will be much harder to drum up the case uh, for humanitarian assistance there. Has there been a strong attempt or or are, are discussions even ongoing um, on a political level when we talk about the countries, the, the national politics and the divisions that, that play out there to, to um, perhaps ne- negotiate um, a, a, a solution to these ongoing divisions or uh, are the different actors so so entrenched in their on their different sides that that it has been just too difficult to even sort of begin uh, a, a path to unity now i'm no south sudanese politics expert but i, I, do <laughs> I, 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 know. I know you said you, you don't necessarily want to answer those questions and then i keep throwing them at you i'm sorry yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, so I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, uh, speak too deeply on a subject that I don't know a lot about, but there, you know, there have been a number of peace processes, some of which may, I think, still be ongoing, uh, happening simultaneously, none of which are really getting anywhere. Okay. And finally, I was hoping you could just sort of, what your piece does beautifully is it uses these little excerpts, both from, you know, from the, who, the, who letters in the post office that you went to are being sent to. From from the return to sender information on the background. There's one one little moment where you say one of the return to sender um, addresses was just simply written "mum," and then you've got other other little excerpts from from the letters themselves. You know, as uh, outlining you know some of these situations that people are going to and, and some of their correspondence. How did it feel when you were sort of sifting through some of this information? I can imagine it must have been, or, or, or was it? Was it overwhelming? 
Um, you know, it, it was because I, I had the feeling that I might be the last person who ever reads some of this mail, maybe the first and last. Um, you know, there's, there's so many, uh, so many letters and, and notes there that just seem to have reached their terminus. They're not going anywhere. The connection has been missed. You know, um, an, an elementary school class in, you know, a primary school class in, in Florida, um, sending letters to a primary school class in Juba to be pen pals that clearly for some reason never got delivered have been sitting in a box since 2012, or a whole lot of um, pieces of mail addressed from Amnesty International groups around the world calling for the, the, you know, the release of a prisoner who was being held without charge, and, and the government official that they were meant to be delivered to had clearly just never picked up his mail, and there were hundreds of these, of these letters spilling out of his box, um, you know, so I, I sort of felt this... Uh, the sense that it all stopped uh, with me. And so, you know, the most I could do was just sort of grab out a few of those stories and, and pass them along. Well, I'm very glad you did. Ryan Lenora Brown, uh, Johannesburg Bureau Chief for the Christian Science Monitor. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. You're listening to The Daily Maverick Show with me, Greg Nicholson. We're hoping to move now to look at issues in Zimbabwe. Uh, many, I think, people know that that the Moranga Diamond Fields about 10 years ago uh, were, were, were found and they were seen as sort of a potential boon for Zimbabwe's economy. The, the government, along with uh, private investors, got very involved in the sector. But unfortunately, rather than being a, a, a huge boost for the country's economy, they've been defined by looting... In this country, we might say state capture and and linked to human rights abuses. And on the line, we've got Michael Gibbs from Global Witness, who this week released quite a fascinating report about not only the state state's involvement in these sectors and, and sort of the, the, the problems with the private sector linking with the state, but also the problems with security forces within Zimbabwe and, 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 and what they've been doing. Michael, can you hear us? Hi there. Hi, Michael. Thanks Hi, Greg. For, this is Greg. Yes, it is. Thank you for joining us. Michael, we don't have much time, no so, so we'll jump straight into it. Are you able yes, to just give a sense, um, give us a sense of the size and potential of the Moranga Diamond Fields and what something like this could have done for, for Zimbabwe? Yes, that's right. About 10 years ago, one of the most significant diamond finds of recent memory was made in um, an eastern part of Zimbabwe called the Moranga region. And that hope, uh, that sign brought with it a lot of hope and a lot of excitement. Um, you know, there was talk from government ministers of, of revenues of $2 billion a year. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of hope, especially locally as well, that this fine really could have made a really significant contribution to Zimbabwe's efforts to chart itself away from an increasingly desperate economic situation. Um, what our report, President Fred Charles, released yesterday shows, of course, is that many of these folks were dashed and Ultimately, the Moranga Diamond Fine has been a disappointment that most of the revenues progressively falling into the hands of the security forces rather than the people of Zimbabwe and their population of Moranga. And could you describe the network of patronage and foreign investors that's been designed to get the diamonds mined into the international markets without being tied to the dubious sources? I didn't quite catch that. Oh, sorry. Uh, are you able to please describe the network of patronage and foreign investors that's been designed to get the diamonds mined and into international markets without being tied back to dubious sources? Sure. So, of course, it's, it's very important to you know that you know, Zimbabwe doesn't cost a 
Holland, so a lot of its own diamonds, and these diamonds aren't really uh, consumed domestically in large quantities. So Zimbabwe's diamonds are ultimately destined for international market, and they are key to making sure that they can be monetized. Um, in the early days of the Malanga Fine, the diamonds were largely mined occasionally by the local population, and I think that really is fair to fondly remembered by the local population of the days of plenty. Um, but after a few years, the government decided that they wanted to move in and take over the diamond mining operations. And the way they do that is that they set up what are called joint venture companies. Those are companies that are half-owned by the government and half-owned by some private investor. And it's really in the setup of these joint venture companies that we have found many of the problems that have allowed so much of, of this potential and these revenues to disappear. Two big problems, I'd say. The first is that the joint venture companies themselves are just not very transparent. They're not very transparent about how much money they've made, how much profit they've made, and that makes it really difficult to, to understand and to determine how much money should have reached the treasury so that we can compare it to the little money that actually has showed up there. And then second, the formation of these joint venture companies lacks basic information often about who the private shareholders are who is really benefiting from, from these companies. And what our research has revealed is hiding behind these private investors are often people with close links to the regime, or in many cases, links to the security services or the military. And so they are able in that way to, to extract off-budget secret financing from these joint venture companies, um, which in turn liberates them from the kind of oversight that um, we typically expect from the parliament and um, budgetary authorities and the civilian and democratic oversight of powerful institutions that lead to healthy democracy. You mentioned the security services. One of the interesting things about your report is, I think it's the role of the CIO and, and also perhaps the military and their, their work with private funders and private organizations and what seems to be suggesting that they are getting paid directly these intelligence services by private f- funders or, or donors for their involvement to facilitate um, the diamond mining process? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, yes, one of the most startling findings in the report is perhaps that in addition to Zimbabwe's military, it looks like the CIO, the Central Intelligence Organization, the domestic surveillance operation that's been widely implicated in, in countering Zimbabwe's democracy and, and violating human rights, is itself a care appears to be drawing financing from one of the Mulange diamond companies. Um, the ways in which they, they draw that financing vary a little bit from operation to operation. Um, we know that in some cases, um, the joint venture companies are paying directly um, through things like management fees and dividends that, that any shareholder would be invited to. Um, we'd also expect in some cases um, the military or military-owned companies uh, to be drawing profits um, as shareholders in the company, and really we've uncovered a, a variety of revenue streams that are linked to these operations to many of the joint venture diamond companies. Which is shocking in terms of what that means for democracy. If now we have an intelligence service that's being paid by by foreign and pri- private investors, you you have to worry about the sovereignty of the the country and and where it's being given. But Michael, I've, I've got to let you go in just a moment. My final question is. We have, there's the Kimberley Agreement, which was set up to prevent so-called blood diamonds entering the international market and funding um, civil wars in, in generally in developing countries. It seems, though, that 
human rights abuses are being committed um, for, from the Morongo Diamond Fields. It seems that we've got rampant abuses of, of what's, what looks like corruption. How how does this fall outside of the parameters of the Kimberley process and allow the diamonds to enter the international market when there should be regulations in place? Yes, yeah, so this report and Zimbabwe's diamond industry in general illustrates one really important and quite fundamental weakness of the Kimberley process, which is the international body to regulate and disrupt the flow of complex diamonds. The Kimberley process defines the complex diamonds as a diamond that's being used by a rebel group to overthrow a government. So in a case like Zimbabwe, where it's the government or the government institutions that are profiting from the diamond and in turn uh, perpetrating the relevant human rights abuses, the Kimberley process remains silent. Uh, the issue simply falls out of the scope of their definition. Um, and so what we see is that Zimbabwe's diamonds are by and large created relatively freely in the international market with the Kimberley process's seal of approval. We think that is a really deep and, and fundamental limitation to the process, and one which means inevitably that companies and consumers simply can't rely on the Kimberley process to ensure themselves the diamonds that they are trading or buying or consuming are not linked to situation and rights abuses, as they might well be in the case of Zimbabwe. And so what we are calling for is the diamond industry and diamond companies to recognize this and to supplement the Kimberley process and the certificate with much more and much better due diligence and scrutiny on their diamond supply chains. We're calling on diamond companies to better understand who they're in business with, what that might link them to in terms of human rights abuse, mm. and make sure that they are comfortable with those Michael Gibbs, uh, Michael Gibbs from The Global Witness, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. We're out of time. Thank you to our guests today, Daily Maverick journalist Richard Poplack, uh, Ryan Lenora Brown from the Christian Science Monitor, and Michael Gibbs from Global Witness. Please download and share the podcast with your friends. We'll see you next week. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.